These days, films often use the names of their directors to market them, even though the auteur theory is no longer as popular as it once was. Steven Spielberg, Martin Scorsese and Michael Moore are every bit as famous as the stars who act in their movies. It hasn't always been this way, however. Back in the 50s, movies would often carry the name of their producer, particularly if they are a well-known, charismatic figure. One such producer was Samuel Bronston. Having spent a number of years producing dramatic films in Hollywood, then documentary films for the Vatican, Bronson decided to move to Spain and set up a filmmaking enterprise of his own. His first two films were both historical epics, King of Kings, the subject of this podcast, and El Cid, starring Charlton Heston. On paper, King of Kings should have been one of the most successful Jesus films ever made. Bronson assembled an impressive lead crew, including the director of Rebel Without a Cause, Nicholas Ray, writer Philip Jordan, and the incomparable composer Mikos Rosa. The cast was no less impressive, utilising great stage actors such as Robert Ryan, Herd Hatfield, Ron Randall and Frank Thring. Ironically, it is perhaps precisely because of the many big names amongst the filmmakers that things went so awry with the final product. Whilst Bronston, Jordan and Ray all had good reputations, they had been earned in different fields. Bronston's ability to produce opulent epics a million miles away from Ray's more personal films such as Rebel Without a Cause and The Masterful in a Lonely Place. In the later stages of production, clashes between these personalities seem to have left the film in a mess. Extra scenes and additional characters were brought into the film and then removed again, requiring even more additional scenes to be filmed to patch up the gaps. The final scene was changed and Geoffrey Hunter's speech was redubbed with a lower, more serious voice. As a result, the film falls way short of its potential, never really certain of what kind of film it is. Is it a Roman action epic or an introspective look at a rebel with a cause? However, in spite of the final production's patched-together feel, there is much to admire about it. Ray's strengths as a director were not only getting great performances from his actors, but also his visual flair. Take, for example, how he underlines the film's meaning through the use of costumes. Before the start of his ministry, Jesus, like many of his followers, wears a plain brown robe, which contrasts with the colours of the ruling Roman army. They wear red, a symbol of power. Once Jesus' ministry begins, however, he appears in white robes, and in a few key points in his ministry, he also appears in red, contrasting his authority and influence with that of the Romans. A similar point is made elsewhere in the film. At various points, we see the power-hungry either climbing up steps or walking up hills. The treacherous Herod Antipas and Judas Iscariot are both shown climbing up steps at the moments of their greatest betrayals. Yet when it comes to Jesus' crucifixion, this redefinition of power is again communicated visually, as Jesus is shown ascending through the streets of Jerusalem. Another example of this is the Sermon on the Mount scene. That scene is one of the film's strongest, and one which Ray saw as pivotal for the film as a whole. It seems slightly strange today, as Geoffrey Hunter's redubbed laboured delivery diffuses the lively spontaneity that the scene's choreography suggests was originally intended. The sermon is built up from a number of different angles, as Jesus' friends, his foes, and those who are simply curious to hear him, gather to hear him lay out his views. 
After opening with the Beatitudes, he moves amongst the audience to take questions, answering them in words which are familiar from the various parts of the Gospels. It's also interesting to see how Ray plays with traditional Christian imagery. For example, the Last Supper scene eschews a da Vinci-esque top table arrangement in favour of a Y-shaped table with Jesus seated at the point where the three tables join. This emphasises Jesus' importance and his centrality, but it also suggests a greater sense of intimacy and community than some of the other arrangements that could have been used. Alternatively, consider the way that the halo that Jesus is given in this scene by a light on the wall behind his head, or the references to Mille's earlier, similarly titled film when Jesus is shown en route to his crucifixion. Another strong visual aspect of this film is the use of colour. The bright and vivid exteriors contrast with the darker interiors, particularly those in the cities. We've already discussed the colours in the costumes. The action takes place under this un intense blue sky. Whilst many Jesus films are concerned with Jesus' eyes, none go for so many intense close-up sh shots of them as this film. I've never seen it on the big screen, but the effect of such arresting shots of his azure blue eyes shown on such a large screen must be overwhelming. Such shots invite the viewer to look at Jesus in a new way, to look into his very being. It wasn't only Ray's masterful visuals that encouraged the viewer to look at Jesus in a new way. Jordan's script enables the audience to look at proceedings through the eyes of two opposite characters. Judas's journey from trusted disciple to betrayer is well known, and whilst the script humanises Judas and makes his betrayal more understandable, it still considers its naivety unforgivable. In contrast to Judas, Jordan introduces a fictional Roman character called Lucius, who travels in the opposite direction. Initially, he is just one of the hated Romans. Yet he ultimately becomes a centurion who declares Jesus is the Son of God as he presides at the crucifixion. Unfortunately, the film is severely flawed. It gets far too entangled in its zealot subplot, meaning that Jesus actually only spends about 50% of the film on screen. The redubbing makes Jesus seem dull in comparison with all the swordplay, and the various chopping and changing of scenes and characters leave it lacking a coherent, overarching narrative. It's unlikely the director's cut of this King of Kings will ever turn up in a vault somewhere, but that won't stop me from hoping that one day, somehow, it will. Thanks for listening. There'll be another Jesus Films podcast next month.